Uh, we're back in the epistle of 1 John, and just to give a couple quick reminders, the Apostle John, who's also known as the Apostle of Love, he writes this, and you can sort of think of this as a letter where his children, his spiritual grandchildren, his spiritual children are gathered around Grandpa John, and he's sharing and speaking to his spiritual children. He has a close and paternal relationship with them. He writes with authority. He writes with a tender heart. And he tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 15, why he writes. He writes so that we may enjoy the assurance of salvation. The gospel of John, and I think this has been true for some of you, has, was more of an evangelistic tool. It was written so that they may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The letter of 1 John is so that we can enjoy that salvation. We can enjoy the freedom of salvation. We can have the joy of insurance of our salvation. And so far, he's gone over a couple tests of salvation, some ways that we can see evidence that we really know God. How do we know that we know God? If God is light, and that's the big idea of the first half of 1 John, if God is light, anyone who walks with God will not walk in the darkness. Humanity, by nature, we are children of wrath. We are in the dark. But when light has come and opened up your eyes, where you were blind but now you see the light which dispels darkness, it will reveal itself in a couple different ways. Those who know God will walk in the light first by confessing their sins. It's how you view your sin, the reality of your sin. How do you deal with your own sin? Is it something you deny or minimize or rationalize? Or is it something you mourn over and confess and repent of? We know the reality of our own sin. The light exposes that. And it leads to confession and repentance. And we cling on to our advocate, our defender, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Those who walk in the light will also, that will lead to a progressing obedience, a growing obedience. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, we will walk as he walked, we will live as he lived. Another evidence of salvation is our love for one another. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is not walking in the light. They are blinded by their sin. They are stumbling. Those who walk in the light will fulfill an old commandment that has been elevated and made something new by Jesus. We will love one another as Jesus loved us. We will serve one another as Jesus served us. We will have a posture of humility when we approach one another. And here in our passage, he's going to give us another evidence of salvation in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the true believer will not love the world because you can't love the Father and love the world at the same time. They are in stark opposition. And if you're tracking with me, immediately there may be a tension within you. Because the reality is that no matter how far along you are on the Christian journey, you are going to be tempted by love for the world. To love the world and the things in the world will immediately, you know, I may read verses like this and try to put as many disclaimers, try to come up with as many exceptions as I can. I may want to argue against it, but let's just take it at face value. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. 
Are you setting your love on something in this world, your affections on something in this world instead of on Christ? We have to acknowledge that our love for God is imperfect. And for many of us, it's very natural, we're inclined, for all of us, to want to drift towards other things. But the gospel demands radical commitment, and this is going to be a battle, a war within all of us. I think one of the reasons, there's a famous hymn that oftentimes, you know, you may have heard it or we've even sung it at our church, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, written by a 22-year-old Robert Robinson. And I think this hymn has survived over the centuries and is so beloved by the Christian community because of this one phrase, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It's this one phrase here, this one line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I think that really resonates with all of us, even if we're believers. And we have an example of this in Scripture, an example of someone who fell away from the faith because of their love for the world, and someone named Demis in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, we see, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demis. He was a partner in the faith, a partner in the gospel. Philemon, verse 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, as do, as, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demis, and Luke, my fellow workers. Here was a close friend and traveling partner of the Apostle Paul, one who helped spread the gospel. He likely left his home and family to go on this journey to spread the gospel. And yet, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, for Demis, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And there's this note of sadness here. Demas deserted Paul and he probably deserted Jesus. He went from a passionate follower of Jesus to a deserter. deserter. He loved this world. The pull from the world was too strong. And I doubt it was this immediate fall from the faith. That's rarely how it looks or that's rarely what happened. It's this slow drift away. It's not obvious at first, but it's slow and eventually it leads to desertion. He let himself be wooed away from God by the world, the devil, and his selfish desires. And there is no Christian that is so mature that we can ignore the warnings of Scripture and think, this can't happen to me. This passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 is a warning. Because we're going to be attacked on all types of fronts, and we need to recognize that there's going to be a war. And like an army that's going to be attacked on different fronts, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, we need to, attack, we need to protect ourselves from all different places. And we're going to talk about the evils of worldliness, but it starts within. It starts within. And one thing that I think I would have done maybe years ago, and I don't want to do today, is that it's easy to just talk about the negatives or the do-nots. We should talk about the things that we should not set our heart upon, but we need to talk about the greater affections that should replace those idols in our heart. We can easily make a message like this into something legalistic about activities that we should avoid, and that's honestly, we see that throughout church history, just staying away from sin. 
But this is also a message on walking closely with Christ. And so before like, we go into any talk about worldliness, we have to remember that the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. That's the pattern of Scripture. The moral commands, the, the, what we call the imperatives in Scripture, always first and foremost have to have the divine indicatives or the realities of the gospel that come before it and come after it. If you've ever been, like, if you've ever seen, like, the Olympics, and I always get amazed when I see, like, the triple jumpers, you know, like, how far they can jump, um, or just the long jumpers, it's, like, amazing. But what you never see is that somebody just walked, like, the Olympic runners or the jumpers, they don't just, like, sort of walk up to the line, stand there with two feet, and then they try to jump. What do they do before that? They go way back, they go way back. And they run, and they gain as much momentum as they can, and then they run, and they jump. That's sort of what I want to do, and I think that's what this passage actually leads us to. We need to back up before the jump, and we need to get momentum from God's grace. Then we can jump, then we can fly. It's God's grace that enables us to follow verse 15 through 17. We don't need our own resources like we just read in John chapter 15. Our resources in themselves are very inadequate. If you're going to try to follow verse 15 based upon your own strength, you will fall. You will not make it. We need to build up momentum, and I think that starts in verse 12 through 14. We need to savor these verses. So I'm going to spend a good amount of time, verse 12 through 14. Read verse 12 with me. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers... Because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And these are the privileges of God's grace. And unless these great privileges are deep inside of our hearts, unless you're really convinced and convicted of them, you won't have the motivation or the energy to really live out the commands of Scripture. When we lose sight of these privileges, God's word, God's commands just become burdensome. And he makes six statements here about three identifiable groups. Little children, fathers, young men. Little children, fathers, young men. The OCD part of me is like, I wish it, these verses bother me. It's like not very well organized. It feels like very repetitive. Maybe it's just, it is because it's like a 90-year-old that's writing this, Okay. But I don't think he's talking about people in their physical age. But he's talking about different stages of spiritual maturity. Infants in the faith, young men in the faith, and those who are fathers in the faith. We're all at different maturity levels. It's not about the physical, but rather the spiritual maturity. Little children in verse 12. And little children in verse 13. Those who are young in the faith. I write to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, and because you know the Father, and we need to stop on these especially, that you have been forgiven and that you have been adopted. 
If you're a new believer, you may, you may not get all the theology. I think of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. When he was coming down from the tree, I really doubt he had a very well-versed theology that he can explain all the different things about predestination and all these different things, but he knew that he was forgiven. And I hope you know that as a young believer, you may not know all these other things about the Bible, but know that your sins have been forgiven. And the basis of that forgiveness is not because of your name, your works, your righteousness. It's because of Jesus' name, on account of Jesus' name. It's who he is and what he's done. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our advocate. And we're entering into territory where you may be tempted and I may be tempted to think, I already know that. But what we're trying to do here is comprehend what we cannot actually fully comprehend. We're trying to know as much as we can about something we cannot fully know. The forgiveness and love of Christ. We may understand it to some degree, but it's not something you get it and you're done. But we go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. We don't grow beyond this right here. And it may be understandable. I was thinking about this. We may understandably go through seasons where we ask, you know, how can God allow evil in this world? How can a good God ask, I mean, allow evil in this world? But I'm thinking when it comes to me and my reading of Scripture, the question I'm asking myself is not how can God allow evil in the world, but how can God forgive the evil in me? How can God forgive me? Why did God forgive me? Why did he seek after me? Why did he search for me? Why did he pursue me in love? Because Psalm 15 says, who can dwell in his sanctuary? Who may live on his holy hill? He whose walk is blameless. Now, that's a problem for us, isn't it? Are you blameless? Have you never stumbled? Then how can we dwell in his holy presence? Are any of us without blemish? You know, in the garden, what happened in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall is that Adam and Eve, before, before sin entered the world, they were naked and unashamed. But when sin entered the world, they were exposed. They were ashamed. They tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves, and we're still doing that today. But they saw one another, and they saw themselves. They saw their own blemishes or flaws. They were exposed. And one of the Maybe one of the biggest consequences or the greatest curses as a result of the fall is that now there's this awareness and sensitivity to self. We're so aware and we can be very absorbed in ourselves. And when we see that, we, are, we see that we are sinful, we are flawed, we are naked, we are ashamed, we're trying to cover ourselves up with the good deeds of righteousness, but we actually... That doesn't do anything. And yet, in Genesis 3, God says, where are you?
And it's not that he didn't know where Adam and Eve were in their sin, but it's this expression of his heart for them. That they were blemished, but he was seeking after them. We are not blameless, but the answer is that there is a lamb without blemish. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 describes him the lamb without blemish, and the blameless one took the place of the blemished, and he bore our punishment. All on account of Jesus' name. You know, I don't know too many people. I don't know anyone famous, but I just imagine it would be nice if I could go to like a really, really, really like fancy restaurant, or I could go somewhere that's really exclusive, and I go to the door, and I, and then... If I knew anyone, I don't know anyone, so I wish I had a real example of this, right? But I knew, and I could go up to them, and it's like, um, and I could drop someone's name. And then I can get in, right? Never really happened to me, because I don't know anyone that's really that influential. Sorry, guys, right? Um, But we drop that person's name. Is there anything special about the name? No. We may go through the phone book, and there may be 100 people with the exact same name, but the name represents the person and the work The name in and of itself isn't a big deal, but it's representative of who that person is and all that person has done. And in our nakedness, in our shame, we come on account of Jesus' name and he gives us the robe of righteousness. I think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 who comes back to the father completely filthy and unlovable, ashamed, and yet it was the father who was searching for him, who was waiting for him, who ran to him and then covered him. And Christian, you are covered, you are clothed by him despite all of your flaws, all of your blemishes, all of your sins, you come to him unashamed. But Jesus, I'm sinful. And I'm so ashamed. Jesus says, here is my robe of righteousness. But Jesus, I'm not righteous. I've done so many evil things and I fail in so many ways. Yes, you are righteous because you have faith in me. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, and helpless look to thee for grace. Do you know this? That you are forgiven on account of his name. It's not for our glory, it's not even about us, it's for his name's sake. And if you've lost your wonder at being forgiven, you probably have too high a view of yourself and too low a view of God. I read Pilgrim's Progress with my children almost every night, and I, now I read it because it edifies me. And I tell them, Daddy needs to read this. And they're like, Christian and Christiana again? <laughs> right? I'm like, yes, again. <laughs> We're going to read it again and again and again because... It's just, it's amazing to me, but there's this one section where Christian, who's going on this journey, and the whole thing is sort of just like a metaphor or analogy for the Christian life, and he has this huge, huge burden. He's carrying this huge weight on his back. 
And it's not until he gets to the place where the king's son died on the cross where the burden just falls off. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Children in the faith, we are forgiven. And we have a relationship with our heavenly Father. And maybe our earthly fathers are not worth talking about. But if you're in the faith, Romans 8 says, the Spirit comes into our hearts. And what does it do? What does the Spirit prompt our hearts, press upon our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father? Not that he's our commander or our drill sergeant. He's not constantly frowning upon us. Maybe that's how our earthly fathers looked upon us, but he's not constantly disappointed in us. He's not constantly glaring at you with harsh eyes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and you are his child. And I pray that it would be our instinct that we don't just come to God as God, But there's an intimacy. We come to him as our father. He knows what we need. He's working all things together for the good of his children. The father, you have a purpose here. I don't understand it, but you are my good and gracious heavenly father. You're working all things together. You will make me like Christ. We'll get more into that in 1 John chapter 3, but one of the greatest privileges, J.I. Packer says, one of the highest privileges, if not the ultimate privilege of the gospel, is that we get to call God our Father. I write to you, little children, because know at least these two things, that you are forgiven, that he is your Father. He also writes to fathers or those who are more mature in the faith, you have known him from the beginning. How precious are those who have gone far in the Christian journey, the ones who have experienced suffering. Time has passed. They have scars. They have progressed in the gospel and in truth. They've taken 10,000 steps in the right direction, a long obedience in the same direction. And there's a grasp of God's, the realities of the eternal God and his nature, and they could see through a heavenly, eternal perspective. They can zoom out from their perspective. They can see God's work throughout Scripture, throughout history. And they continue on. They keep running. They have a deep knowledge of Jesus. You know the Lord. You know him deeply. That means something. That I know him. And lastly, to the young men, I write to you because you have overcome the evil one. And we enjoy forgiveness. We enjoy our adoption. But as you progress in the faith, you realize that there's going to be a fight. There's going to be a war. You have been saved, and now we need to overcome. And Scripture describes us as overcomers. And the secret, if there is a secret to their strength, is because the Word of God is in you. The Word of God lives in you. 
That's what enabled these young spiritual men to be strong. Their strength, their victory comes from the word of God. They struggle with the scriptures. They grasp the Bible. They seek out the wisdom. They bow before its commands. They surrender to his will. Psalm 119 verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And because the word of God is in them, there's strength. A strength that the world cannot have. The world may have brain power, money power, ambition power, but can they overcome the evil one? How are we going to become spiritually mature in the faith? Time in itself is not enough. It will happen as the word of God becomes our map, our food, our guide. We carry it with us in our hearts. Not just this quick 10-second reading or just one quick verse, but we love the entire Bible. We cherish it. We're hungry for it. We long for it. We've been forgiven We know God. We've been adopted. And we overcome because of God's grace. That has to be our momentum. This is who we are. Let your soul be still if it's in turmoil. This is who God is and the benefits he has given to us. This is our anchor so that we're not tossed to and fro like little children. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're anchored in the word of God. We are sustained by the promises of his grace. And if that's the case, now we look at verse 15. Do not love the world. And this is a warning for all. We're not invincible I've seen it enough now, just in my short journey, I've seen enough friends and former partners in the gospel who thought they were strong and now they've deserted Christ. And we know that temptations will come. Every day we will face temptations. And if you think you're strong, you may be setting yourself up for a fall. Do not love the world, the cosmos. This isn't talking about the created universe. Other times the world is neutral. It may talk about God's physical creation and nature. But here it's negative. It's the fallen system of their world, the rebellion of mankind against God and his people, human society organized under the power of the evil one. We see this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world, the whole cosmos lies in the power of the evil one. And we don't love the world because love for the world, later we'll get into this in James chapter 4, it's enmity with God. If my affections are set on the world, the love of the Father is not in me. Love for the world expels the love of the Father. It diminishes it. It it weakens it. It removes it. It expels it. You know, it's just like, of course, you know, children before meals, they're so hungry. Of course, during mealtime, they're never hungry, right? But how often have I spoiled my children? I'm guilty of this. How how often have I spoiled my children, like, here's some ice cream at 4.30 p.m. or something like that? We give desserts 
We eat upon things that are not healthy for us. And that spoils our appetite for what is really good. And so often we are eating of the world. We're desiring the world. And we're giving our affections and our devotion to something other than Christ. But when our souls are undernourished and starved or eating of the wrong things, we're drifting away from Christ. We're losing sight of the privileges of the gospel. And what happens then is that our faith will become mechanical, cynical, anxious, fearful, complaining, grumbling. And we need to go back to the spiritual blessings that we have. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. We need to savor that. We need to feast upon that. Take some time to examine your heart right now. You may know it in your heart that the world is slowly taking over. You're more excited by the temporal things, and it's hard to concentrate on God for more than two minutes. But like I said earlier, worldliness, you know, we could say it's something outside of us, the world, but it's found in us. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of the flesh, the sarks, the lusts of the flesh, it's this attitude in our hearts. And I always, how I remember is you just flip the word flesh and take off the H and you have the word self, right? Self. Someone made fun of me about that. That's like, that's such a youth pastor thing, right? I was like, no, I got that from Alistair Begg, so I don't feel that bad, right? right? Self. Just think of that. When we're talking about flesh, it's the fallenness that is obsessed with self. It's an obsession with self. It's our heart's desire to see everything from the perspective of self, and there's constantly a war where we desire to do things that we shouldn't do And we don't do the things we ought to do, Romans chapter 7. Our fleshly instincts are opposed to the desires of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. There's a problem in my heart and my flesh. And it may be weird, like I don't want you to go and research all this stuff, but I heard it a while back and I confirmed by certain websites where, do you want to know what the number one holiday in the satanic religion is? It's not Halloween. It's your birthday. Don't go look that up, okay? You don't need to go look at these websites, okay? I did just to confirm. But the Satanist, it says in one, one uh, resource, the Satanist celebrates the birthday as a way of glorifying the self. And doesn't that sort of make sense? Like, my birthday is the one day where I am justified to be completely self-absorbed. It's just true. I, I feel completely entitled. Like, how can you not have done this for me, Grace? Right? <laughs> you know? Um, that's not true, but it's just, you know, right? Uh, like, I could, because I could act all macho and be like, hey, it's okay, we don't, uh, you know, my birthday means nothing anymore, but on that day, I'm a little bit butthurt that we actually didn't do anything, and, and, and I just sit there, like, moping and self-pitying and just like, how come this day didn't feel special to me. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, don't go into extreme. I'm not saying we shouldn't celebrate and shower attention and love upon people on their birthday. But it's so interesting to me that the Satanist religion glorifies indulging in the flesh, glorifying the self, 
self-absorption, self-love in its worst form. While the Apostle Paul tells us to put to death what is earthly in you, put to death the deeds of the flesh, Jesus says, deny yourself. Self-absorption or self-love is the opposite of loving God. It's when we deny ourselves and forget ourselves that we are free. The worst advice is to follow your heart. That is unbiblical advice. Follow your heart. Your heart is evil. Your heart is tangled. You cannot understand it. Where we don't live driven by our desires. Verse 19, chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 19, now the works of the flesh or the self are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the Westminster Catechism, if you're familiar with that, it says the chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him. It's to enjoy God and glorify him. It doesn't talk about glorifying ourselves. Because there's true freedom when we forget ourselves. We are at our best when we deny ourselves. And I see a picture of this in the elders of the book of Revelation in verse 10. This is what I think we were made for right here. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him, him who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I think that's freedom right there. It's not this self-obsession or self-absorption. It's glory to God. His namesake, not mine. And when our flesh meets the desires of the eyes, that's the next phrase here. When our flesh sees what's in the world, there's a battle outside of us that can awaken the evil in us. When you're walking along, you're doing fine. There's evil in us, but it hasn't been exposed yet. And then you see something on social media. And then all the evil and jealousy and envy, it comes out. And our evil hearts meet the world with all its fake appeal and attraction. You see something and you want it. You covet it. You will do whatever you can to get it. It looks appealing. It looks nice and shiny, but it will kill you. A lot of things, Satan will put it on a hook, but he doesn't just leave a hook. We know that's wrong. He puts a nice, attractive bait on it. James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And you see this constantly in Scripture where Achan saw something. He wanted it, and the consequence was death for him. 
Samson saw it and wanted it, lost his life. David saw it and wanted it, and it led to disastrous sin. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn your eyes away from beholding vanity. Turn away your eyes. Because the world is designed, and all its mechanisms are designed, to allure you through the impulses of your flesh and the desires of your eyes. James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4, parallel passage to 1 John chapter 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enmity, an enemy of God. And we have to ask ourselves the question, if the world is tempting you, is there something that you just want too much that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get it? What is it that you want too much? When James sees these people wandering from God, he calls them you adulterous people, meaning you've been unfaithful, you've been flirting with the world, you've been cheating on the one you said you loved, you're falling in love with the world and forgetting your first love. Because the uniform, if we want to use sports analogy, the uniform, let's just say the team motto of anyone who has Christ as their captain is that it's not about me. It's not about me. But the uniform of anyone who puts on the uniform or the uniform of the world is it's all about me. That's not freedom though, right? Are you putting on the uniform of the world instead of the uniform of Christ, our captain? The third phrase, the pride of life. And this touches every area of our life. You want to have a life that's on display. You want to show off your life. Social media feeds that like crazy. Pride destroys pretty much everything, and we need to do better than those around us. It's not just that I need to succeed in life. I need to be better than those around me, the pride of life. If you didn't know before, I was a pastor not that long ago. I was a financial advisor. And I remember when I first joined that career, it's just this ridiculous glory board, right? There's literally like this online thing where you could see every person in the company and see who's, who's the best. And um, trust me, I was like number like 6,834 or something like that, right? And, and, and out of 12,000, so it wasn't that bad, right? Um, <laughs> but um, I remember when I first saw that, I was like, this is so stupid. This is such an earthly motivation. It's like, it's, literally, I called it the glory board. But then little by little, I find myself looking at it more. I'm like, that guy's ahead of me? Oh, no. <laughs> like, that person, I am smarter than that person. I am more competent than that person. And little by little, it eats away at me that this person knows that they're higher than me or they're better than me. And we don't have a glory born in life, but subconsciously, we keep track of where everyone is. And there's so much pressure, isn't there? Like as you go into your 20s and 30s, it's like, oh, I feel like I'm falling behind. There's that sentiment there. 
there are these markers that, script, uh, that the world puts on us that if you're not doing these things, if you're not moving ahead in these seasons, then you're less, your glory is less than these people. And it's alluring. You find yourself like slowly giving into that. But even when you move up the glory board, you look ahead and there's still a thousand people ahead of you. And you feel prideful that, hey, I'm better than these people, but then you feel despair that these people are so much ahead of me. And it's tiresome to be driven by the pride of life. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary. And that comes in the context of works righteousness because nobody wants to be a nobody. Everybody wants to be a somebody, somebody syndrome. Everybody wants to show. It's not even just like I'm competing against myself. That may be fine, but oftentimes we're competing against others. And that is so tiresome. Constantly aware of myself and where I stand in relation to others. And I'm saying rest. Rest your souls. Come to me, all who are weary, Jesus said. Your righteousness comes from him, not from your works. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. But that's something we need to acknowledge, that we can be addicted to our own pursuit of self-glory in relation to others. Paul Tripp argues that we're addicted to the pursuit of self-glory because when we look in the mirror, we think we see someone who deserves to be glorified. If we're honest, that's very true. And it's when we look into the mirror of God's word and God's glory that we see who we truly are by nature, and it's humbling, and it's freeing. God's grace leaves no room for self-glory. Grace and pride cannot exist together. It's not a fun life to constantly, in our pride, need to promote ourselves. Is your life about you, your name, your glory? And we just have to acknowledge that, man, we live in this world where the cravings, the sinful Sinful desires of the eyes, boasting, we're surrounded by it. It's the atmosphere we live in. Every time we walk around, I bet every job you go to, the atmosphere we enter into is this pride of life. Affection for the world will produce conformity to it, and we want to boast in ourselves instead of Christ. And it leads to this lack of sober-mindedness where it's so easy. Let's not overestimate ourselves. It's so easy to be intoxicated by the lives of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this temptation is just everywhere. And so I'm thankful, Jesus in John 17, he says, I'm praying for you. I prayed for you. Not that you'd be taken out of the world, but you'd be in the world. You'd be able to withstand the world, conquer, overcome. But oftentimes our minds are drunk with untruths or half-truths, and these are fatal to our souls. And we need to take John's warning against worldliness, especially in our hearts. 
I'm going to do it again, another C.S. Lewis metaphor. Some of you like it. I hope a lot of you do. But this is one of my favorite. If you don't know, again, i got to go over it. C.S. Lewis in the Chronicle of Narnia, it's revolving around four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And these are the four heroes of the original book. But interestingly, it's so profound to me, a little bit like shocking to me, Susan, the eldest child, the second eldest child, she doesn't end up in heaven. She doesn't end up in the final Narnia. And the following is an excerpt from the last battle, the last book of the Chronicles Narnia. And I'll put it up here. I think we have the slide. Sir, said Tyrion, when he had greeted all these, if I have read the Chronicles aright, there should be another. Has not your majesty two sisters? Where is Queen Susan? My sister Susan, answered Peter shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to tell her to come and talk about Narnia, do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy, you still think, you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Oh, Susan, said Jill, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She always was a jolly sight, too keen on being grown up. Grown up indeed, said the Lady Polly. I wish you would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and stop there as long as she can. And I know some of you are like, you've used this illustration before. Yes, I have. I apologize for that. But it's just one of my favorites, okay? Why is Susan no longer a friend of Narnia? She's just too grown up. She laughs at her brothers and sisters who still talk about Narnia. She's strong. She's independent. She's sophisticated. And C.S. Lewis says that Susan made the same mistake that he made for many years, that if you want to grow up, you have to move on. You can't be into the supernatural. You can't be into the gospel. That's kid stuff. And she... Drifted away, drifted away. I don't know where you stand. Maybe you're in here right now and you're on a search. Maybe you don't even believe in God or you're not sure or you just came with a friend. But sooner or later, in my experience, what I've seen is that whether even the most successful people in the world, there's this window of, or season of their life where they sort of wonder, is this all there is? And we have all these questions. There's a riddle called life, and we're all trying to solve it. Where did we come from? Who am I? Where am I going? What's my purpose? Are we just an accident? And we could look to science or all these different things. Science examines physical laws of the universe, but you can't learn about meaning through scientific study. There's something that all of us are longing for, trying so hard to grasp, but it's so elusive. We're looking for something deeper. And the secular world leaves a vacuum or it leaves a hole in our hearts, and you see it all over the world where even though mainstream religions are dying or they seem to be dying, pagan religions are on the rise. 
You see this in Iceland where you can, you can worship the god of thunder or Freya, you know, crazy, the goddess of love. You can go ghost hunting. You can see that religious shrines in Japan are increasing. All of this to replace the vacuum of secularism. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says, The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And C.S. Lewis again points out we have this lifelong nostalgia to be reunited with something in the universe from which we've been cut off. There's a door we're banging on that we're on the outside of. We always feel like we're missing something. If we could only be summoned inside, then there would be a healing of that ache we feel. For at present, we're on the outside. We're on the wrong side of the door. And the longing of the human heart is ultimately a longing to be known and loved by God. And we need to tell that to our friends and neighbors. That the longing of the human heart, the solid joys and the lasting treasures that we're looking for, that they're looking for, are only found in God and ultimately in God's revelation of himself in Christ. But it's not just understanding that. It's those who say to Christ, your will be done. Real comfort will always be associated with submission. As long as you're constantly fighting the will of God in your life, if you're constantly battling God's right to rule over your life, there won't be true peace. But when we surrender to his will and obey, we'll find something that will last for eternity. It's when we find freedom from our self-absorption in the love of God that even in our self-centeredness, God loves us and God is pursuing you now. I'm going to read an excerpt from a poem called The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. And this poem is representing this hound that, that represents God who is chasing after those who are running away. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the la la labr labyrinthine ways. Gosh, I practiced that beforehand and I still messed it up. I'm not a poetry reader, obviously. Of my own mind in the midst of tears, I hid from him in under-running laughter. Of vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed and followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet. All things betray thee who betrayest me. Not shelters thee who will not shelter me. Lo, not contents thee, who contents not me. And God is chasing after us who are running away. And we don't realize the desires of the heart that we are seeking, we are, we are seeking we're actually running away from. 
We tether our life to this thing or to that thing, to this thing in the world, until finally we're face down and fallen. That's when the hound of heaven catches up, and he says, anything that keeps you from God is betraying you. Anything that keeps you from God is betraying you. Which, which world are you living for? Have we set the affections of our hearts on Christ? Remember the privileges of God's grace. And we will not be conformed but transformed to be more and more like Jesus Christ. That's our prayer. That's my prayer for us. That in view of his mercies, in view of his mercies, in view of his grace, we will offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wander. It's the world just seems so alluring. Maybe we get jealous or envious of the unrighteous. But it's not just our desire to stay away from sin. But we want to love you. We want to be melted by your love for us. We want to remember your forgiveness and your mercies that are new every day. We want to remember the cross and we want to come before it and have our burdens fall. It's a hard and long journey. And there are times, God, where it feels like we may want to quit or we want to drift away. We don't want to submit. We want to buy into the things of the world. Our hearts are weak. Would you hold us closely to you? Would you enable us to love you more, to love one another more? Would you give us the freedom from condemnation, even self-condemnation? Would you enable us to be overcomers? Not by our strength, but by your grace. We pray for joy. We pray for freedom. We pray for assurance of salvation that will enable us to not love the world, but to love you and to know your love. Help us, God, in our unbelief. We do believe, but help us in our unbelief to treasure Christ, to treasure your forgiveness, to treasure your adoption, to treasure knowing you, to treasure your word. Change the affections of our heart. Remove the idols, and would you replace it with who you are? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.